Welcome to the Troya Needle Show, the NEA Big Read, National Endowment for the Arts. This is a podcast, and we're, anybody can read anything they like. The theme is loosely survival. In the current Troya Needles magazine, Troya Needles 33, is entitled Survival. Size between 45s changing, all multicolored lights bubbling. Get rid of the brat, he says to my glass-eyed mother. I remember most the skull in his eyes, his sharp-edged belt buckle, a silver horse rearing. He wears stiff blue jeans above pointed-toed boots. He stares hard down his hooked nose at me. I'm seven, I offer, like Seagram's. He leans over, his face is red, his breath smells like turpentine. He raises the back of a knuckled hand before he brushes me aside. Go play outside, my mother says, between swallows. I see the ice against her glass, the rust-colored water. I don't want to, I say. The puff of his exhaled lucky strike smoke pushes me backward toward the door. Once through the screen door, I feel the pipe railing with my hand. The cement stairs are crumbling. I swallow hiccups, brush back tears, sniff. He's still watching me, turns around, then back, quick. When I flinch, he laughs bucktooth. He throws me a package of chuckles, the candy falls to the sidewalk. I stare up to the lighted neon letters that spell Seagrams, seven. Over the doorway, I want to grab my mother's glass and drink the sign above is an orange flame. Magic. Desert Wren, Dare of a Coyote, Joshua Tree, Hummingbird, Scorpion, Lizard, Desert Flowers, Mojave Desert, Prop Motors, Solar Panels, A Good Use, Not a Cesspool of Smog Like King Cole. Ruth Nolan says, It Spoils the Desert. I remember walking home at 12, finger-numbing cold from the ice rink, the frozen lagoon, the snow falling, big flakes. I heard the hiss from the high-tension blinds. At home, it was warm. The family Labrador slept near the heat vent. Okay. Excerpt from the Song of Eternity. I, my song, this song of mine will wind its music around you, my child, like fond arms of love. The song of mine will touch your forehead like the kiss of blessings. When you are alone, it will sit by your side and whisper in your ear. When you're in the crowd, it will fence you about with aloofness. My song will be like a pair of wings to your dreams. It will transport your heart 
to the verge of the unknown. It will be like a faithful star overhead when dark night is over your road. My song will sit in the pupils of your eyes and will carry your sight into the heart of things. And when my voice is silent in death, my, my song will speak in your living heart. Rabinda Nath Tagore.
but that's how the child in me felt. Children must also forgive and forgive. I married someone who felt like family and quit my job to focus on motherhood and one book only, the novel I would write. Most of our neighbors in Georgia were white, straight, conservative. I say it was 17 miles and 20 years from the city, meaning so close yet so far behind. I was advised not to bring up religion or politics. I was reminded to speak sweet, but that made my teeth ache. <laughs> the things I care about, the things I write about are not sweet, like the lies of convention, the violence of silence, morality's gray areas. But I didn't want my young son to suffer just because his mom voted for Obama. I did try at first. I made small talk with fellow moms about the weather, the weather, the weather. <laughs> As if we'd never studied things or traveled or worked in offices or shops or made anything besides babies. For me, small talk is worse than loneliness. It rained often there. Booming thunderstorms, sheets of water that turned the air opaque. Mold lurked. Fungi bloomed across our lawn, which, like me, did not thrive. My son grew up. My husband grew apart. The effort to behave became static in my ears, a noise I could not escape. On my writing desk was a mood-lifting happy light, which did not lighten my soul-deep knowing. I am not happy. In 2010, I happened upon Joshua Tree. Everything changed on that first drive through the park's west entrance, that fantastic Seussian dreamscape. Fields of Joshua trees and mounds of boulders. I was dazzled by that vibrant, endless blue sky and the surreal line of peachy tan rock that cuts across it. When I hiked, a lullaby rose from my boots. Home, 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 home. I stopped and listened to the pristine quiet, so absolute it was as if I had returned to the womb, the whole world muted. Then individual sounds arrived. The cactus ran like a motor, trying, then silence. Families of squabbling quail, coyotes singing their welcome to the dark, then silence. In those boulders, I saw a mother swollen with possibility. I saw her formerly molten state, proof that phenomenal transformation is possible. It is, in fact, natural. I wished for the desert to deconstruct me, as it deconstructed wood, leather, steel, and sound. Desert sunshine became my favorite drug, and I came back often for a taste. I returned in different seasons, wanting to know this place. One winter, I climbed Ryan Mountain, I learned that sometimes bitter wind roars across this desert. I could make friends with it or abandon this stern mother who, I already knew, was no pushover. One hot July, I hiked alone to the 49 Palms Oasis. On the uphill return, I became overheated, disoriented. I knew I would have to save myself. By 2017, <clears throat> I'd written and published my novel. It was not set in the South, but in New York's Hudson Valley, another place I lived which was not exactly home. By then, my son was 18 and moving into his freshman dorm. 
My heart swelled with pride, then clutched at the loss of him. I started a new novel, this one set in the suburban south. My words were reluctant. I don't think I wanted to write about that place I did not love. My husband did not love that place either, or me by then. He left for better possibilities, and I planned to do the same. By 2017, many of my fellow moms were finally paying attention. Like women across the country, they marched and canvassed. They said they would turn Georgia not just purple, but blue. I told them I was already gone. I put our house on the market, and then the sky fell. A moldy roof shingle had developed a pin-sized hole, and over time, the rain did its worst. One day, we had a thunderstorm, and the pressure proved too much. Sodden sheetrock and insulation hung from a gaping, dripping hole like a mouth screaming, where do you think you're going? I stared up through the hole to the gray sky. I was dismantled. My wish came true. I left the South with a life edited down to its essentials. I had few possessions, few people, not much of a plan. Near Memphis, a piece of twisted metal on the highway caught and tore the bumper of my old RAV4. One last test of my determination. I sped on, bumper flapping. Once here in Joshua Tree, I turned my face to the sky and got to work. The dry air roughened my hands like a fighter's, and that felt right. Words poured from me like sunshine. Within nine months, I published a chapbook of new stories. It was an easy birth. My life, like the roof, was ruined to be rebuilt. My past lay dead like fallen, skeletonized Choya. But Choya regenerates. New green shoots spring up from dead branches. The desert is a tough mother, yes. But she rewards those of us who are brave. She offers silence and light and the space to write new stories. Our stories, but better. Because a thing that looks dead may not be, or not completely. Not just yet. She was loose gravel in a concrete parking lot, thrown to the wind, always coming up on top, making her way when there was no way. Belinda was a good girl, so they say. Those freckles didn't help her, but those blue eyes did. She'd wind them in on 20-pound test. She was just a red-haired kid. 18 years of slumming, not knowing what to do, because no one no one told her nothing. No one ever could. She was just loose gravel in a concrete parking lot, scattered.
survivor. Maybe a survivor is the last one to come home, the final monarch that lands on a branch already weighted with ghosts. And I, I do recommend the novel, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. <clears throat> uh, the word survival conjures deep unease in me suggesting an urgency that inheres in all living things, an erect green plant pushing its way toward the sky through an impossibly small crack in a layer of concrete sidewalk, or a parent lifting an object several times heavier than her own weight to free her child pinned underneath, a hiker lost in the Hawaiian wilderness drinks stream water, and consumes wild berries in an instinctual effort to avoid death. Monarch butterflies travel north as far as 3,000 miles to complete their migration, executing a sort of relay race that extends over several generations in order to reach their destination. As the seasons change, a super generation then reverses the journey, lives an astounding eight months, and flies south in order to transfer its life force to the next generation. Such is the complicated Gesundheit and laborious process <laughs> that ensures the monarch's survival. In nature, a dizzying array of adaptations gives the biotic world advantages that evolved to ensure the continuation of the species. Survival connotes a measure of good fortune that allows one to surmount challenges above and beyond the presumably ordinary business of making it through each day unscathed. It means getting through the night in spite of unforeseen circumstances. An intruder, perhaps, or an earthquake, a firestorm, a coronary event, or an arrest. War, genocide, a kidnapping, a pogrom. Pandemics, explosions, overdoses, tsunamis, murders, and suicides. It is astounding how greatly life 
is fraught with danger. The word survival provokes in me an immediate association with its proximate relative, survivor. When my mother was nine years old, she and her parents, Hugo and Hildemann, fled Nazi Germany on December 23, 1939. In Rotterdam, they boarded a Dutch freighter bound for the east coast of the United States. Their sea journey had been preceded by a year passed in hiding among family members in the city of Mannheim. After two weeks on rough Atlantic seas, isolated by language as the only German speakers on board, the small family of three arrived in New Jersey on January 5th, 1940. There they were met by relatives who had already managed to escape. One of them, my uncle Ernie, was already serving in the US Army and as a native German speaker, was soon sent back to Germany to fight the Nazis on his native soil. My mother was the second of my grandparents' children. Gunther, my mother's older brother, was born in 1929 but did not survive infancy. He died of a staphylococcus infection contracted in the hospital where he had been born and is buried in the Jewish cemetery in Worms. As a result of this loss, my mother was born at home in Fiflisheim, a village just south of Worms. My mother enjoyed a seemingly healthy and uneventful beginning in Germany. Or did she? When I recently looked at my mother's birth certificate, I was surprised to find that it, its government stamp bore a Hockenkreuz, a swastika. She was born on June 2, 1930, a full 10 years after the Nazis had appropriated it. My mother's entire life in Germany, therefore, unfolded under the reign of the Nazis. Because the family lived in the countryside they were not initially subjected to the levels of violent anti-Semitism suffered by the Jews living in urban areas. But this outlier effect did not last. In 1933, when my mother was three years old, her father, Hugo, was arrested at home in the middle of the night. My grandmother protested and was struck by a leather belt belonging to a Schutzstaffel, that's SS officer, splattering her nightgown with blood. The SS sometimes ambushed my grandfather as he rode his motorbike home from work. More than once, he arrived at the house on Landgrafenstrasse with blood flowing from his nose. In 1935, when my mother started uh, school at five years old, she was prohibited from attending public school. Instead, she rode the trolley that ran in front of her house to the local synagogue in the Judengasse in Worms. There stood the Rashi Temple, 
Next door to the temple was a school. Rashi, the medieval scholar Rabbi Solomon ben Itzak, had studied in Worms from 1060 CE until 1065. During that time, the city was an important center of Jewish scholarly life. In fact, there had been a period of 900 years of uninterrupted Jewish life centered in that part of Germany. Rashi stood out as one of the great Jewish thinkers of Central Europe during those centuries. And at the school named for him, my mother briefly received an education. Then one morning, she arrived to find the school ablaze as part of the Nazis' campaign to eliminate the Jewish population. The night of November 9th to 10th, 1938, is known as Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. Throughout Germany, as well as in parts of Austria and Czechoslovakia, Jewish homes and businesses were targeted, property was destroyed, and more than 30,000 men were rounded up and removed to concentration camps. 200 synagogues were reduced to ruin, 8,000 shops were ransacked, and at Landgrafenstrasse 18, number 18, my mother and grandparents watched in terror as their house was broken into, the goose down pillows slashed open, and their feathers tossed out the windows. The crystal hutch was shoved over, its contents shattering on the ground and falling into the street below. The next morning, in spite of the night's events, my mother boarded the trolley for school. When she arrived, the Rashi synagogue was in flames. It too had been attacked. She was told to return home. There, she found her mother closing up the house, leaving food and water for the animals, and preparing to board the trolley. The plan was to meet my grandfather in Mannheim, where he had gone to check on his in-laws. When the trolley arrived, the conductor saw them, shook his head, slowed a bit, and without stopping said, no, we don't take Jews. Moments later, my mother saw a car in the distance and recognized it as belonging to Uncle Arthur, the husband of one of Hugo's sisters. The car pulled over, and after she and my grandmother had climbed in, Arthur drove along back streets, shunning the main arteries in order to avoid arrest. My mother remembers looking out the car window and seeing an elderly couple standing in front of their house watching their belongings burn. Once my mother and grandmother arrived in Mannheim, they stayed with relatives. My grandfather was still away, checking on other family members. One day while my mother and her cousin Hans were playing in the street, my grandfather approached from several blocks away. He recognized my mother's red hat. In that moment, he knew she was safe and taking refuge with the family members living on that street. 
he too had finally reached safety. To this day, my mother tells me that her father occasionally said to her, you saved my life. Had I not seen your red hat, I don't know where I would have gone or what might have happened to me. My mother does not remember anything more about that interim year. After fleeing the house and arriving in Monheim, and before boarding the freighter in Rotterdam. I guess I didn't go to school that year, huh? She has said to me several times. We took boxes with us, but I don't know how they got to the ship, she recalled. And the set of silverware was missing the knives. The china had been intentionally scratched by my mother because nothing new was permitted to leave the country. After boarding the Burger Dyke in Rotterdam, my grandfather repaired to a berth not to be seen by my mother and grandmother again until the ship arrived in New Jersey. Their winter of 1939 Atlantic crossing was very rough, and my, grand and my grandmother, who did not tolerate the pitching and rolling well, stood at the railing one day and exclaimed, if I ever see land again, I will never get on another ship. And she never did. In February 1940, on the return trip to its home port in the Netherlands, the Burger Dyke was torpedoed by a German U-boat just off the Cornish coast of southwest England. It sank where it had been hit, never reaching Rotterdam. I have always been perplexed by my grandfather's obstinacy. Why didn't he leave Germany sooner with his wife and daughter? Why were others able to flee well before 1939? What prevented him from recognizing the genocide in progress? And why did he later complain so bitterly from his chair in California that he should never have left Deutschland. Although what was happening there was apparent to some. My grandfather, who was born in the same house in which his daughter would be born, was vehemently not going to abandon his Heimat, that's his homeland. It was primarily thanks to the efforts of other relatives that passports were issued, visas obtained, and passage on a cargo ship arranged. He could not imagine, or so I imagine, a life other than the one he had always led in any place other than the one he knew. But still, the terrible fuckery of the world in which he and his found themselves must have forced him at times to reconsider staying. Those are circumstances bewilderingly difficult to conceptualize. Perhaps the brutal facts made the reality of home impossible to discern. Maybe a survivor is the last one to come home. 
the final monarch that lands on a branch already weighted by ghosts? Or is it the one born to a super generation, a player in a larger pattern, a red hat seen from four blocks away, the torpedo launched a month later than it might have been. These are the curious currents of happenstance flowing through our lives, making our journey feel rich yet tenuous, holding us in the thrall of all that remains obstinately unknowable. A monarch alights on a girl's red hat. She is delighted. Years later, she will not remember this moment. Not a beginning. They weren't a crew at all before the end. Most had never met. Some showed up as familiar faces, nodding as they passed on washboard dirt roads. Others kept so much to themselves they hadn't even registered. They were bound before by something different. A desire to live under the wide expanses of the dusty desert valleys, where the wind sweeps rocky paths between mountains, where water changes the topography in every rainstorm, where the sky tie-dyes each evening as the sun sinks below the horizon. Some out there knew the end had happened within the very day, had started as a normal drive down the roller coaster hills of the desert highway into the nearby town, turning back when they reached the top of the last crest. They had seen enough. There would be no turning back now. They kept quiet, if only to take a moment to reflect on their options. Plus, it wasn't clear what did it, who you could trust, if you might be next. The desert folks weren't like the city folks, though. No screaming, no mass hysteria. <laughs> For others, it took over a week to even notice a change. Maybe a hint when the internet faltered that fateful afternoon, but it often did when the cotton clouds started the sky. Animals still whined to be fed, the moon still rose, but eventually they ran out of something, food or water, beer, and set out only to discover a new truth. For others, it took all the way until the electricity quit. The lack of electricity really was a big issue for most everyone out in the desert. Water pumps stopped running, swamp coolers hissed as their tanks dripped and emptied. It would take time to work through this, to develop an appreciation for the end as a beginning. But those that were here now, who made up this modest crew, those are the ones who had found their way through and to each other. It has been years now, and they are up to 53 people, more social than they have ever been before, moved up into the shade and protection of the mountainside, the desert too harsh with no Walmart backstop. Besides, it's the land of the free again, room to roam wild. 17 years, 17, no longer moving, no longer wandering, no longer even wondering much. They have electricity again, antibiotics. Climate change had kept changing the climate, but even that movement lost its vigor when all the oil drills stopped pumping. Solar, wind, more than enough for 53. Nowhere near even Dunbar's number yet. That'd be for another generation to deal with. For now, they work together small enough to coexist. Books are hard to come by now, if you haven't noticed. And um, ironically, I came across a newspaper that they print in this place called New Petoskey. And the newspaper said that if you bring your books there, they will give you wine in exchange for your books. Kind of a hard decision. And I've got two or three books that I've read probably five or six times already, and I'm thinking if I make it up to New Petoskey, I might trade them in for some wine. I also miss music. And before I started walking after the tragedy, 
I was trying to figure out what to bring with me, what to pack, and I just had this really strong urge to bring my flute, which I learned on when I started playing in the fourth grade, and after high school I didn't really use it much, but now I use it a lot more. to the levee, but the levee was dry. Them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing this'll be the day that I die. Thanks for coming out and celebrating creativity.
Have you ever wondered why people live in the desert? I'm Dawn Davis, and I host Desert Lady Diaries podcast. It's a weekly conversation with women who found their home in the Mojave Desert. Each week, I talk to women who were either born and raised in the desert or felt called to come here and what the desert means to them. You can learn more about the podcast and listen at DesertLadyDiaries.com.
tapestry is just a uh, deception that is, you know, meant to Needles and uh, to all who participated, and Rich Sue.